Now, Joab may be pulling a chapter from Nathan's book of confronting somebody through his story first, decides that he's going to figure out a way to get through to David. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now, Joab's son of Zariah realized that the king longed to see Absalom. So Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman. He told her, pretend to be in mourning and put on garments for mourning. Don't anoint yourself with oil. Instead, act like a woman has been mourning for the dead for a long, some time. Go to the king and speak to him in the following fashion. Then Joab told her what to say. So she's going to pretend to be a woman who's mourning the death of her sons to David. So the Tekoan woman went to the king and she bowed down with her face to the ground and indifference to him and said, Please help me, O king. The king replied to her, What do you want? She answered, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Your servant has two sons. And when the two of them go into fight in the field, there the one pre- there was one present who could intervene. There, sorry, there was, no, there was no one present who could intervene. One of them struck the other and killed him. Now the entire family has risen up against your servants, saying, Turn over the one who struck down his brother, so that we can execute him and avenge the death of his brother whom he has killed. In doing so, he will also destroy the heir. They want to extinguish my remaining coal, leaving no one in the face of the earth to carry on the name of my husband. So basically her story is made up. I have no husband. I have two sons. The one son has killed his other son out, or other brother out in the field. That leaves me with one son. But he has to die according to the law of judgment. And then that will bring him into my line. Now according to Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5 allowed the judges to extend grace to a murderer and allow them to live if there is no heir. If this justice executed on somebody who's murdered somebody else, it brings into the line God allow grace there. However, here's a big problem. The law also said there must be repentance. It didn't say that if the murderer is the last son of the line, they're automatically exempted to continue the line. It says that grace may be shown to them and they can be exempted from the death penalty but the implication is repentance. The implication is repentance. Has Absalom shown any repentance? No. Is the mother talking about her son in this hypothetical scenario having any kind of repentance? No. They're basically pleading on the case of tradition, being an heir. And so basically, Joab's great wisdom the wise woman's great wisdom is excuse him from a crime regardless of whether he's repented or not just for the sake of tradition. The tradition of keeping the line going. God allows exceptions, but the exceptions are always based on theology, not tradition or bibliology. And so God forgave David, but David had repented. And that's the part that Job is leaving out. And so yet the woman is presented as a wise woman, but then the question becomes, how wise is she really? How wise is she really? Then the king told the woman, go to your home. I will give instructions concerning your situation. And the Tekoan woman said to the king, my lord the king, let any blame fall on me and on the house of my father, but let the king and his throne be innocent. 
And the king said, Bring to me whoever speaks to you, and he won't bother you again. And she replied, In this case, let the king invoke the name of Yahweh your God, so that the avenger of blood may not kill him. Then they will destroy my son, he replied. Son. He replied, As surely as Yahweh lives, not a single hair on your son's head will fall on the ground. So David takes the false wisdom of the woman and basically exempts him from the murder based on tradition and not repentance. Then the woman, verse 12, said, Please permit your servant to speak to my lord the king about another matter. He replied, Tell me. The woman said, Why have you devised something like this against God's people? When the king speaks in this fashion, he makes himself guilty, for the king has not brought back the one he has banished. Certainly he must die in are like water spilled on the ground that cannot be gathered up again. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways for the banished to be restored. I have now come to speak with my lord, the king, about this matter, because the people have made me fearful. But your servant said, I will speak to the king. Perhaps the king will do what the female servant asks. She reveals is, hey, this is really about your son. You haven't extended grace to your son and brought him back. The problem is, it's not the same. Because in that case, she had one son left, and the law is supposed to be based on repentance. In this case, does David have only one son left? No. And there's no repentance. So in this way, Job's analogy is really pathetic. Because it completely violates the law that there must be repentance. And two, the analogy is about having one son only left. And David has multiple sons left. So there's no fear of the lion being dead. So yes, the king may listen and deliver the female. Sorry, I read that. So verse 17. So your servant said, May the word of my lord the king be my security. For the lord the king is the angel of God who comes deciding between right and wrong. May Yahweh your God be with you. And then she elevates David up to like godlike status. You're an angel of God, a messenger of God, a son of God, a divine-like being. All the words here seem to be completely wrong. Then the king replied to the woman, Don't hide the information from me. When I question you, the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. And the king said, Did Joab put you up to all of this? And at that moment, David realized something's... What common everyday woman comes and fashions a... Um, a, a story up like, and then has the audacity to call a king out on being a hypocrite. No commoner would ever dare do that. And that's when he realizes, and it might be feeling a little too familiar to the prophet. <laughs> and at that moment, David realizes Job is behind this. Job is behind this. As surely as you live, my lord the king, there is no deviation to the right or the left from all that my lord the king has said. For your servant Job gave me these instructions. He has put all these words into your servant's mouth. Your servant Job did this so as to change the situation. But my Lord has wisdom like that of the angel of God and knows everything that is happening in the land. Now here's a huge irony here. Does he have the wisdom of an angel of God? No. Has he been demonstrating wisdom in any kind of way? Is this woman demonstrating wisdom? Is Job demonstrating wisdom? And here's the other thing. Does David know everything that's going on in the land? No. Everything in this story on the surface sounds like, 
Oh, the narrator told you that Job got a wise woman. The woman tells a story. It kind of convicts David. And it feels like, okay. But once you start digging deeper, you realize this is really, really bad theology, bad advice, inaccurate information. Because this is the wisdom of David's palace. This is the wisdom of the people around David. David's house is not only falling apart morally, but it's falling apart in the true wisdom of God. Verse 21. Then the king said to Job, All right, I will do this thing. Go and bring back the young man, Absalom. Then Job bowed down with his face toward the ground and thanked the king. And Job said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, because the king has granted the request of your servant. The question is, what is Joab's motivation? Because Job is willingly ignoring the law on the death penalty. He's seeking to get Absalom back. It could be, we don't know exactly for sure, but it could be that Job is thinking tradition as well. Remember, Job is much more of a traditional person than he is a biblical person. And tradition says that the next son should become king. And the fact that he tells a story of the last heir, and we know that Absalom is not technically the last heir, but in some ways he kind of is in the fact that he's the king's son. He's next in line for the throne. It could be that Joab, being a warrior, and that all the other sons have fled, and we're going to see later that there really is no other son that is comparable he may not respect any of the other sons to take the throne after David. Yeah, Absalom's kind of a wild, violent, crazy man who disregards people, but who does that remind you of? David and Joab. So you're like, why would Joab support him? Because he's just like Joab. Traditionally speaking, Absalom is a next in line. We've also seen that Absalom is a very strong, present person who's able to win loyalty. He has lots of power. All the other sons fear him. Joab may be looking at all the other sons who are too young to take the throne, especially in the sense of Solomon, or that he doesn't see them as manly enough. And so in his mind, he might be thinking David only has one heir. He only has one heir. So basically, Joab is doing this to serve his own purposes, just like everything that Joab does. And so he goes in and gets Absalom. So Job went up and got to, went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, Let him go over to his own house. He may not see my face. So Absalom went over to his own house. He did not see the king's face. So David allows him back, but he doesn't talk to him. He gives him the silent treatment. <laughs> That's where Absalom learned the silent treatment from his father. I doubt that this is the first time dad's ever done that. Verse 25, Now in all of Israel, everyone acknowledged that there was no man as handsome as Absalom. From the sole of his feet to the top of his head, he was perfect without a blemish in his appearance. And when he would shave his head at the end of every year, he used to shave his head for it grew too long. And he would shave it and it used to weigh the hair of the head and it weighed three pounds according to the king's weight. Absalom, according to the king's weight, uh, Absalom had three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a very attractive woman. Now this gives you a lot of insight to Absalom. One, we know that he hasn't been rebuked by his dad ever. Two, we're told he's very handsome 
and we know as the king's son, he has lots of money and power. Good look, looks, lots of power, and not being rebuked by parents is a horrible combination and character development. I don't think I've ever known anybody who's turned out decently without some other intervention somewhere else in their life, in that kind of a sense. But the, the Bible, remember, we've all, there's only a few times that the Bible's told us that somebody's good-looking and always gets them in trouble. But we're only told that they're good-looking. This is the first time that the Bible's really developed that. From the sole of his feet all the way to his head, there was not a blemish. And not only that, he had like Fabio Johnny Depp hair. <laughs> That's the idea. It was thick. It was vibrant, and he used herbal essence. <laughs> he was every woman's envy in appearance and hair and beauty and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that the Bible is giving more sentences to this than anybody else really is showing you that he's trying to emphasize what Absalom really is in his character. And the idea is, this is the worst person so far in the Bible that could probably inherit the line and the kingship of Israel. He is shallow, he is undisciplined, he is uncontrolled, he is violent, he is vengeful, and he's used to getting everything that he wants and everybody liking him. That's a horrible thing combination. And that is interesting that right after Joab gave the great advice that he should bring Absalom back, the narrator comes in and reemphasizes Absalom is the worst person he would ever want to be heir. And all this suggests that David should be executing him. As hard as emotionally as this could be, everything the narrator is telling you is that Absalom should die. He's spoiled. He is powerful. He is wild. He has murdered somebody. There's no repentance. And the minute he murders, and you know how this is, We've watched enough movies, read enough stories, watched enough news to know that when somebody who has total power and no morality and is uncontrolled kills or does a crime for the first time, it's just all downhill from there. When there's no repentance, it's just going to escalate. This is the makings of a dictator, a Saddam Hussein. And that's what the narrator wants you to know. And he comes back. Absalom lived in Jerusalem for two years without seeing the king's face. And Absalom sent a message to Joab asking him to send him to the king. So two years silent treatment on Amnon. Then he kills him. Then three years living in Gesher without talking to his dad. Coming back from Gesher and now two years of his dad giving him the silent treatment. This family is thriving in communication and healthiness. This is not good. It says that Absalom wants to talk to his dad. For two years, he says, okay, I want to talk to my dad. So dad's not talking to him. Dad's not replying to his text messages, his voicemail, nothing. And so he decides, well, he seems to listen to Joab, so I'm going to go through Joab. So he contacts Joab. But Joab was not willing to come to him. So Joab's giving the silent treatment too. So he sent, this is the king and the general of an empire. And the, the way they solve problems internally is silent treatments. That's not healthy. So he sent a second message to him, but he still was not willing to come. 
So he said to his servants, look, Job has a portion of the field adjacent to mine, and he has some barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants said, Job's portion of the field in the fire. Then Job got up and came to Absalom's house. He said to him, why did your servants set my portion of the field on fire? And Absalom said, Job, look, I sent messengers to say to you, come, here so that I can send you to the king a message. Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Let me now see the face of the king. If I am in fault, let him put me to death. Now, what does that sound like to you? Nobody will pay attention to or listen to him, so he burns down the fields to get his attention. Yeah, a toddler. We know if kids aren't getting attention from people, they immediately act out. Because bad attention is better than no attention. This is what this is what toddlers do. He's a grown man. But why does he do this? Because it's worked his entire life. And he's never been rebuked by his father. And he's good looking and powerful and gets whatever he wants. And when he does it as a full grown adult, old enough to be married and have three kids, it still works and he gets Job's attention. And nobody's gonna rebuke him. And in fact, he has the audacity on top of that to say, well, if I'm at fault, then let somebody punish me. Heck yeah, you're at fault. You've murdered your brother. And you've burned down your, your, your uncle's fields. But it doesn't even occur to them that he might actually really truly be guilty. And that he should be punished. Because nobody ever has. And it's always worked for him. This is dysfunctional. And in clinical psychology, this is called arrested development. <laughs> Something went wrong. So he's like, it'd be better for me to be in Gesher than get the silent treatment here. That's the one right thing that he's probably spoke so far. So Job went to the king and informed him, and the king summoned Absalom, and he came to the king, and Absalom bowed down before the king with his face toward the ground, and the king kissed him. And that's it. On to the next story. Three years of living in Gesher, two years of a silent treatment, you finally talk to your son for the first time in five years, and you just kiss him on the cheeks and send him away. Now, there probably would have been some words, but nothing significant for the narrator to tell you that there's any kind of re resolution, any kind of forgiveness. I mean, there's just nothing. It's just like, we'll, we'll, we'll agree to be family, and that's kind of it. This is all dysfunctional. It's like every little good thing that you might have still had left in your mind about David is like going out the window. I know I'm like really ruining David for a lot of you right now in this story. Like, wow, I don't, we haven't really, even the good things I've really tried to emphasize seem to be like completely disappearing from our minds right now. 